0: Welcome again to our second day, it's the third session. Uh, we haven't reached Zechariah yet, but I'm pretty well certain we'll get there today. Um, this, this microphone is right here. That's why you're wondering why you weren't here. Okay, fine, fine. Uh, it's really enjoyable singing with you. You really sing very well, and may the Lord be honored with our singing You know, singing is one of the finest ways in which the church expresses its faith. And uh, I, too, am a little bit uh, uh, suspicious of new hymn books, but they can be a real blessing, too, so long as new hymn books don't cut us off from the heritage of the singing church. And I think some of them do. They want to be so contemporary that uh, they... Uh, that the hymn books, they they rewrite hymns and cast them into different tunes so that we no longer are singing with the church of the 19th century and 18th century and 17th century. You know, especially the Reformed tradition has this marvelous uh, uh, heritage of the singing of the Psalms. It's interesting, isn't it, that the so-called scripture songs that young people seem to love to sing, and I frankly like to sing them too, uh, seem to go back to the psalm so often. I think that's great to sing actual scripture. Um, I know I was in a church not long ago where they don't use hymn books anymore. And they don't even have a screen like we sang off a screen. They sing off the wall. You know? <laughs> 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 well, they project... Every song is projected on the wall. As a matter of fact, they deliberately constructed the front of the church so that there's a big, open, light space on the wall. Well, I think it's fine to write new hymns, so long as they're scriptural, because our scripture, our singing, should be an expression of our faith, and our faith should be founded in the Word. But uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a little sad to see some traditions and some churches shy away from the classical hymns. Uh, incidentally, um, this the Trinity hymn book is very familiar to me because for the last, last 30 years, Trinity Christian College, where I taught for half that time, uh, has used only this hymn book in its chapel services for the last 30 years. So I'm very familiar with this book. I've learned to love it. And of course, at Westminster Seminary, this is what we use in our chapels too. Um, but uh, it's, it's perfectly all right to prepare new hymn, hymnals so long as we don't change the old ones, too. I think we should sing hymns just like they sang them when they were written so that we have this sense of fellowship with the historic Christian church. We believe in, a, in, in the church of the ages, you know. The Lord has promised to have believers in every age. He didn't skip the 15th century. I know some of the medieval songs are a little difficult for us to sing, but uh, we could even find some of these that are very helpful in, uh, in expressing the faith. I sub- I'm just learning that this is what picks it up for the auditorium, and this just goes to the tape. I've been trusting this thing too much. Okay. Well, so much for a word of introduction. Um, also, I received a question after the uh, meeting yesterday. I don't even know if this is still in. Okay, which uh, so I want to go back to this just a minute. I didn't intend to do this. I left my pencil, some, my pen somewhere, so I don't have a pointer. Thank you. Well, a lot of helpful people. We have a Okay, uh, I think someone's in control of that. Um, we talked about Cyrus's edict, and we're going to read the actual edict from Second Chronicles chapter 22. Cyrus's edict is in the Bible, and incidentally, archaeologists have have uncovered it. Believe it or not, the actual tablet—it's not the whole thing; it's only a piece of it but the actual tablet that uh, uh, Cyrus's decree was written on. And the question arose, well, what is the relationship between this, this edict and uh, Daniel chapter 9? Because you'll recall that Daniel chapter 9 uh, speaks about the declaration of uh, Cyrus that permitted the uh, exiles to return. And let me just read that, uh, just part of that passage, it starts with verse 20 in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, Daniel is praying sincerely that the Lord would fulfill his promise to restore the exiles to uh, Jerusalem and Judea, and after this marvelous prayer uh, in which he confesses the sins of the people and, and calls upon God to fulfill his promise, then we have the prophecy of the 70 weeks as it's called, or 77s, if you have an NIV. The word for week and the word for the number seven is the same in Hebrew. So they said, uh, have a good seven if you're going to have a week vacation. Have a good seven, you know. So 77s is 70 times 7, and that's 490. And so what this really is, is a prophecy of 490 years. 77s of years. So we read. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel, and making my request to the Lord, my God for his holy hill, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. And then uh, he says he had this 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 communication from Daniel, and this is the actual vision now, verse 24. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now that is obviously a reference to the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, the peak event in revelational history. Uh, And so the prophecy is that in 490 years, From the date of the decree, the Messiah will come. Everlasting righteousness. um, Anointing of the Most Holy. The King James, incidentally, is even clearer on this messianic character. Know and understand this. From the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the Anointed One... The ruler comes. There will be seven sevens. Seven times seven is 449 years. And 62 sevens. 62 times seven is 434 years. I think that's close, isn't it? No. Yeah. uh, Maybe I'm adding a little too rapidly. Um it will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. So Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. Um, and then, after the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and will have nothing. Uh, the people of the ruler will come, who will come, will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, the question is do we uh, judge this 490 years? Actually, it's a section of 49 years and then 430 years and then one seven-week period or seven years. Do we begin determining that from Cyrus's decree? And the answer is no. Uh, If you do so, it, it won't come out for one thing. And that's why we put Artaxerxes' edict here also, 457 B.C., now, I wasn't going to make a reference to that, but the question arose, and I think it is germane to, to clarify this matter. Um, as a matter of fact, remember the prophecy of Daniel says, no one understand from this, that's verse 25, from the issuing of the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Well, Cyrus' Cyrus's decree only allows... For the rebuilding of the temple, so even on the basis of the biblical content of the decree, we can't identify Cyrus's decree with the decree that's prophesied uh, that uh, determines the coming of the Messiah. However, and I, I don't have time to go into that. If you will, if you will use your mathematical formula Beginning with Artaxerxes' decree of 457 BC, uh, it, it, it falls in perfectly. As a matter of fact, within 49 years of Artaxerxes' decree, the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt. And then, between the 49 years and then the second 62 sevens period, it comes out exactly to 26 AD, which is when our Lord Jesus was 30 years old because he was born in 4 B.C., remember. That's one of the reasons why I prefer the the 4 B.C. rather than the 6 or 7 B.C. that I mentioned briefly yesterday. And uh, that's when the public ministry of our Lord Jesus began, and it comes out perfectly. And then if we were to go on to Daniel's uh, uh, vision, it finally says that in the middle of the last seven-week period, seven-year period rather, Messiah will be cut off. And the Hebrew word means actually put to death. And the King James says, but not for his own. Not for himself, I mean. So it's a substitutionary atonement. And, of course, our Lord Jesus was crucified uh, about three and a half years after his public ministry began. So it fits in in, in very, very perfectly. This, uh, I was brought to recognize the... uh, eh, the, the precision of Daniel's decree by uh, an Old Testament professor I had, Martin Weingarten, who had a uh, rabbi friend, and they would discuss Old Testament and the expe- especially Hebrew and Assyriac. He was a specialist in Assyriology, uh, study of the Assyrian Empire, together. And on one occasion, the uh, rabbi said to uh, uh, Professor Weingarten, if Jesus really is the Messiah, how in the world do you understand Daniel's prophecy of the 70 weeks? Because from the rabbi's point of view, he thought the 70-week period was to be interpreted in a far different way. And uh, Martin Weingarten was a very slow, deliberate kind of a person. And he went to the blackboard and drew a timeline, and he observed that there really are three decrees There's a Cyrus decree, a Darius decree, and an Artaxerxes decree. And then he pointed up how Cyrus's decree and Darius's decree only relate to the building of the the temple. And only Artaxerxes decree, Artaxerxes, remember, was likely raised by his stepmother, Queen Esther. I think there's a remarkable providential relationship there because it was extremely unusual in the early uh, ancient world for a conquering nation to allow a former enemy to rebuild its capital city, especially its walls, because that represented military defense, you see. And of all things, Artaxerxes Artaxerxes permits the exiles who had returned already about 75 years before to Judea but who had never had permission from the emperor to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, just the temple. Artaxerxes says to Nehemiah, you recall, you can go back and rebuild the city too and its walls. Remarkable thing. And um, uh, I think in the Lord's providence, uh, it's because this Artaxerxes was the son of Xerxes and Esther. I know he's called Ahasuerus in the Bible, but that's his Hebrew name, his Persian name was Xerxes I, who married Queen Esther. And uh, Artaxerxes was just a young boy in that family, and so his stepmother was Queen Esther. And so he, he came to know someone from the covenant tradition, and he had this kind disposition to, uh, to the Jews and permitted the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem which, of Lord, which in the Lord's great providence was a fulfillment of prophecy. So Artaxerxes probably wasn't even aware of it, that he was an agent in the hands of the Lord to fulfill his prophecy. Well, it goes even further than that, but uh, I think I better stop there, except to add one more thing. <laughs> the Persians have always been rather kindly disposed to the Jews until the Ayatollah Khomeini. Do you know the Shah of Iran, really, his, he got into real trouble with the Muslim leadership of his country for two reasons. One, because of his close association with America, the great Satan, from the Muslim point of view. And secondly, because the Shah of Iran assisted Israel during the 1967 Seven-Day War, or whatever it was, When all the Arabs cut off the oil supply from Israel, the Shah of Iran uh, continued to supply Israel with oil, which was needed, of course, for its war, for its war effort, and that's one of the reasons uh, they were the Ayatollah Khomeini and his people were so opposed to the Shah. But the Shah was a Persian and was trying to reestablish the ascendancy of the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire ever since Cyrus was kindly disposed toward the Jews. But that has somewhat come to an end with the, with the replacement of the Shah of Iran. Um, I was uh, on active duty as a Navy chaplain at the time, and I was at a conference where we shared the, uh, the, uh, the mess hall, cafeteria mess hall, with, uh, with some... The students at the Naval war College that's in Newport Rhode Island, someone I talked to said they had some duty there. Well, um, I happened to sit one day at the table with two Iranian naval officers, and uh, I expressed some surprise that the that Iran was that was under the Shah of course was rebuilding such a big military uh, naval Uh, a force in the Persian Gulf. And they both said, well, that's because we are in the process of rebuilding the Persian Empire. But, of course, that has come to somewhat of a uh, halted condition since the new regime. Well, I just wanted to add that. So please don't uh, identify Cyrus's decree with the artaxerxes decree and with the prophecy from Daniel chapter 9. Let's uh, turn our attention once more now to what we were supposed to conclude yesterday, and that is the characteristics of canonical prophets. You recall first of all we said that a true prophet of the Lord had a direct personal relationship with God, one whom God had taken into his confidence. Secondly, we observed that the prophetic office was a way of life, that a prophet was sensitive in everyday experience to the manifestation of God's will. Thirdly, we observed that the call to declare God's word by a prophet was inescapable, even if he felt uncomfortable with it, especially the alienation that so often went with the uh, true prophet's life he still had to proclaim God's word. Hosea, incidentally, complains. I don't know if I mentioned this yesterday. Complains that he couldn't retire. He couldn't retire like those professional prophets who were in the king's court, who were in the employ of the king. Uh, he had to stay. He had to prophesy as long as he lived. Now let's look at number four. These somewhat are related, of course. Um, the prophet's life was a life of isolation a life of rejection, a life of persecution, one of alienation. Uh, We're going to try to stay with Jeremiah as our model, but we'll see these characteristics emerge um, somewhat less dramatically, but still present with uh, Zechariah as well. Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 9. Then the Lord said to me, There is a conspiracy among the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. They have returned to the sins of their forefathers who refused to listen to my words. That's that's where it begins with verse 9. Now if you move ahead to verse 19, you see the results of the fact that Jeremiah is called To proclaim the to expose the sins and the forfeiture of of, uh, God's will among the people. Verse nineteen. I had been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not realize that they had plotted against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree and its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living that his name be remembered no more. That's the kind of uh, attitude the people had to Jeremiah while he, 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 they wanted to simply get rid of him. And I imagine that rejection burned into his bones. Another characteristic, the fifth. A true prophet was called to his prophetic ministry, not hired or born into it. You, have you noticed how in the Old Testament tradition, if, uh, if a person was the son of a priest, he grew up to be a priest. Aaron's sons became priests. Eli's sons became priests. Even if they see, didn't, didn't seem to have the uh, moral and spiritual qualifications, there were some very, uh, very wicked examples. So they were positions that were inherited. was the same thing was true with kings. If you were the son of a king, you became a king. Or at least one of the king's sons became a king. And often, of course, they fought with each other. The sons, the the children fought against each other to see who would uh, accede to the throne. And some of it was very, very bloody. Of course, some of it was the, uh, the former king's own fault. If you think of David, for instance, one of the... One of the sad results of his multiple marriages was that these many, many children, the sons of these many wives, uh, competed with each other to succeed David to the throne. Uh, Absalom, for instance, uh, raised a rebel army and marched on Jerusalem and forced uh, David literally to run and flee into the wilderness. And later he died, but there were others too. And to try to make his own choice, uh, David actually appointed Solomon king while David was still himself king. So Solomon was co-regent, associate king, co-king, for four years before David's death. And that was because David knew there would be a, a bloody effort to try to succeed him among his own children. And so he tried to select. So... Uh, the kings and the priests got their jobs by inheritance, not so the prophets. The prophets were called. Amos was, uh, was a farmer, wasn't he? He raised sheep and he dressed sycamore trees. And the Lord called him away and said, you've got to go to the king's court up in Bethel, up in Samaria, northern kingdom, and declare my word. And he had to go. They were called Samuel. Samuel didn't have an illustrious uh, heritage. He wasn't the child of a prominent person in the land, a pious uh, set of parents, but they weren't prominent in the land. And the Lord called him, middle of the night, Samuel, he's only seven years old. Three times you know that story. So the prophets were called, not hired like the false prophets, or born into it by way of inheritance. Um, Jeremiah chapter 1. I mentioned in passing Samuel as an example, but listen to Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Before he wasn't even human yet. Before, when he was still only um, uh, a mass of protoplasm. Is that what it is? Well, that's what the abortionists say, you know. I'm playing, of course, devil's advocate. This is proof that the Lord sees a person as a human being while in her or his mother's womb because, uh, because the Lord doesn't call uh, masses of uh, cells to be prophets. He calls people, human beings. And so he calls him, I appointed you as a prophet to the nations before he was born, called, to his prophetic ministry, not hired or born. Incidentally, um, I think there's a... Well, we'll we'll reserve that for a little later. Let's take number six. A true prophet was always convinced of his own unworthiness. Uh, Moses was a prophet, and he felt unqualified for the role to which God had called him. Uh, Isaiah was a prophet, felt unworthy for the role to which God called him. And I read to you passages from Jeremiah yesterday in which he says, look, I can't, I can't manage this anymore. I wish I'd never been born. I'm not up to this task. That seems to be characteristic of a genuine prophet of the Lord. Now I want to add uh, an observation, a seventh observation that <clears throat> the, for which I don't have a particular example in Jeremiah or the rest of the Bible, but in uh, preparing these, uh, these, these characteristics of a true prophet, which we will see reflected in Zechariah, and we've seen examples in others, it, uh, it came to me that the prophets never started their own religious movement. Um, the prophets never developed personality cults. Now, isn't that interesting? Uh, the prophets never seemed to exhibit a celebrity mentality. Now you know what we're talking about, huh? We have so much of that in our modern world. And I guess there's been some of it throughout Christendom, but there's so much of it Today. Prophets always identified in solidarity with with God's people, even when God's people did not act like God's people. My Jeremiah, when uh, Jerusalem was being uh, besieged by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, and Jeremiah kept telling the king, King Zedekiah, hey, you better surrender, because Nebuchadnezzar is the agent in God's hand to discipline his people. To purify them for his service, and of course Jeremiah was alienated. He was stuffed down a well, some kind Ethiopian came you know and lifted him out of the well again. He was called a traitor, he said he was unpatri- they said he was unpatriotic, but he was right. it was the word of the lord surrender don 't uh, don 't uh, Call upon the name of the Lord to deliver you from what you deserve by way of discipline from His hand. But they never started their own cults, and uh, so many today, so many cults begin with a, some with someone who claims a prophetic genius, prophetic insight, and you have you all have all sorts of them. You know, uh, Sun Myung Moon. Uh, founder of the Moonies, the International Association of the Holy Spirit, or something like that—they call it. They call, he calls himself. He claims divine special revelation, and that's the case with you know the Jones, uh, Jonestown community, and what a disaster that became. And if you look at Cog International, children of God International, as it's called, founded by a man who was a Reformed pastor for six years and then threw it all over and started this cult. And uh, now he's extremely wealthy and he got in trouble with the IRS, so he flew away to Switzerland. There, that's where he lives and runs the cult from there. They all claim um, they all claim special authority. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, that particular one writes mole letters and that's short for Moses' letters. And uh, it, it, they advocate uh, all sorts of uh, immorality and promiscuous practices, and all by way of a claim of special revelation. Well, the true prophets never did that. They simply were the Lord's messengers to the Lord's people. And uh, when they ca- called judgment down from heaven... Because of the unrighteousness of the covenant community and its waywardness, they called it down on their own heads. You know, Jeremiah didn't run off; he was given the opportunity. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar's general of the army was so pleased with uh, with uh, his rec- uh, with Jeremiah's recommendations to King Zedekiah to surrender that uh, he uh, he said, "Look, would you like to go to Egypt uh, and just go, you know, as an?" Egg- Exile and uh, live uh, the rest of your life out there. Uh, he said, "No, I'm going to stay with uh, God's people and suffer with them." That's the nature of a true prophet. Which brings us to our next point, and that is, how did the prophets get their messages from the Lord? Now this gets us closer to Zechariah, finally.) <clears throat> the means and manner of God's disclosure to true prophets now? Well, there were several ways. Uh, for instance, God revealed His will to His prophets through theophany. That's simply two Greek words, theos and phaineo, which mean God, God appearances. A theophany is a sensually perceived Manifestation of God's presence. And God did that, you know. Uh, A few examples. The burning bush. A sensually perceived, by the senses, Moses perceived God's presence. And he heard God's voice. And of course, any time a prophet heard God's speaking, like Samuel did in the middle of the night, that's a sensually perceived divine revelation. Uh, Job had that kind of an experience. So that's one way. Theophany, the preeminent theophany, is the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is the divine appearance. Incidentally, the song that we sang that's going to be part of the new hymnal and it's not in, in the old one, uh, And Can It Be, you know, uh, the chorus, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Did Charles Wesley write that? I believe Charles Wesley wrote that. You know, there's not a single Charles Wesley hymn in this hymn book, so that's somewhat of a change. There's a Samuel Wesley, but not a Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley, of course, was an Arminian. But you know, when he sat down to write hymns so often, because of his allegiance to the Scripture, his hymns came out Calvinistic. (laughs) They have to when they're true to Scripture. And Charles Wesley was was making a confession of the deity of our Lord when he said that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. There's a recent... uh, yes. Are there really? Why couldn't I find any? I, I, looked at the, I looked at the list of authors. Maybe I was looking at the, the uh, musical. Oh, okay. All right. Okay, I, I'm corrected. <laughs> Fine, good, correct. So he was making a testimony in another recent uh, rewrite, re, republished uh, hymn book that the word Thou My God has been changed to Thou My Lord, which uh, somewhat um, plays down the testimony that Wesley was trying to make there. Well, Jesus is the ultimate theophany, the ultimate divine appearance, because in his very person, uh, the Lord is present among us. God is present among us. And that's why, incidentally, on in this, the, the, this diagram that I've tried to present to you, it culminates uh, with the person and work of Jesus Christ because everything in the Old Testament has to be understood in the light of the cross. And that's why it applies to every age, because Jesus Christ applies to every age. So the Old Testament anticipates the Savior, the New Testament retrocipates or looks back to the Savior, but, uh, but he is the, uh, the key to uh, the understanding of all of Scripture. So a theophany. Secondly, direct communications or messengers from God. Um, uh, we just read from Daniel chapter 9. And there, Gabriel appears to Daniel in a vision, but Gabriel appears, and that's a messenger from God himself. So that's one of the ways in which the prophets received their their, uh, revelations from God. In all of this uh, discussion of whether there is prophecy today uh, one has to ask whether, whether we can expect uh, Gabriel to uh, awaken people in the middle of the night today, as Gabriel did in the case uh, of some scriptural experiences. And uh, I, I don't know of any of those who claim that there is direct revelational communication today, and all charismatics, for instance, claim that, I don't know of any that claim that Gabriel can serves as a messenger as he did in, so frequently in Bible times. So, direct communication uh, through messengers from God. That's one of the ways. Three means and manner of God's self disclosure visions and dreams. I like to group them together because a vision and a dream is so very, very similar. Uh, that's something, of course, that is not audible, that's very personal. But now we're going to look at Zechariah and we're going to notice that he receives his communication through visions. The whole book of Revelation is a vision, isn't it? It's a vision of John on the island of Patmos. And we have to interpret it in the full understanding that that's what it is. It's a vision. uh, Which means that we have to understand in the light of the rest of the scripture what the symbolism of the vision implies and not just take a one-for-one literal interpretation. For instance, we're going to see after just a bit that in a vision, uh, Zechariah sees many horsemen and horses. Now, uh, we, are, we are not justified in saying that he actually saw horses, actually ridden, but in the vision, he did see them, and therefore we have to ask ourselves, what does it mean within the context of the vision? What do these horses represent? What do... Uh, in the context of that vision. Fourth, a fourth way in which God revealed his his will through miracles, through miracles. Uh, The miracle of the floating axe head. Mm -hmm. Uh, The miracle of the Red Sea's waters parting. God reveals his will and what his intentions are through miracle. And again, the greatest miracle ever is the incarnation of the divine Son of God through the the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. I like to uh, refer to the mother of our Lord, (laughs) of the human nature of our Lord, as the Blessed Virgin Mary, because the Bible says, all generations shall call her blessed. And that's the one thing for which we have to be grateful for the Roman Catholic tradition because they keep calling her the Blessed Virgin Mary. And I know they've made a theology out of that, which is very, very erroneous, allowing her to be the redemptrix and the uh, mediator in uh, in prayer. And we don't want to accept that at all, but she was blessed among women to be the, the selected agent. And that's why, incidentally, this narrows down so far, because we finally end up with Uh, God's divinely chosen virgin and uh, Jesus as the final agent of God's redemptive purposes in the world, the final miracle. And then number five, we have to add a a fifth and last uh, means or manner of God's disclosure to the prophets. And I simply call that unspecified. (laughs) And that's because there are so many places where the Bible simply says, And the word of the Lord came unto this prophet, that prophet. It happens in Zechariah. You'll see several of these reflected in the book of Zechariah. And so we don't know. It's unspecified. But the word came. And it was revealed. And now we can live by that. Well, and now I just want to make some comments about whether there are prophets today. Because as you know... That's quite an issue, even in our own Reformed uh, uh, tradition. At least in the last 15, 20 years, it has become something of an issue. Is there prophecy today? Well, we said that the nature of a prophet is to be a spokesperson for God. And there are spokesmen for God today. Uh, In my judgment, the pastoral office, the pastoral pastoral office in the church is is primarily prophetic in its uh, character and nature. Uh, I like to see, because I have this preference for the flow of redemptive history, um, I'm a three-office person, as Ed Clowney is and a few others, uh, because it's so clear to me, at least, that in the Old Testament, there in the covenant community, there were three offices through which God's leadership and will was exercised in the covenant community. And they were prophets, priests, and kings. And I think that's so clearly reflected in our creeds. I mean, look, uh, doesn't the Westminster uh, Catechism, both shorter and longer, tell us that Jesus fulfills the office of chief prophet, only high priest, and eternal king? Why that recurs in the Helvetic Confession, in the Heidelberg Catechism, in the uh, in, in the Westminster? Uh, why why do all of these Reformed creeds speak of Jesus as our chief prophet, only high priest, and eternal King? Well, I think it's because in the covenant community in the Old Testament, the anticipation of the perfect prophet, priest, and king to come was was identified with the imperfect shadow of the prophet, priest, and king within the covenant community. Now, I know prior to Moses, all three were caught up into one person. I think Abraham functioned in a priestly, kingly, and prophetic role uh, as one person. And up till Moses. But once you come to Moses, then it's differentiated. Then it's separated. Then Aaron and his descendants become the priests. Then elders are appointed among the people and Moses retains the prophetic office, and there are prophets during the period of the judges. They're, they're in, they crop up infrequently until finally you get to King David, and I think that's another reason why it's a transitional period. Uh, from King David on, no one person was allowed to function in more than one office. When King Isaiah went into the temple and served as a priest, made sacrifices, you know what happened to him, leprosy, leprosy. Because he, a king, was trying to function in another office as well. Uh, Saul, he was a king, the first. And yet he made sacrifices, you know. And Samuel came to him and, and said, what have you done? Well, he said, well, I'm to thank the Lord. Actually, he wanted to justify his stealing all that cattle from, from, the, uh, from the enemy, And Samuel says, well, because you've done this, your descendants will never serve on the king. He was a king and trying to serve in that other capacity too. So they're always separate, always separate. As a matter of fact, when you come to to the exile, the kingly and the priestly offices are temporarily discontinued. When they were in exile, no one functioned as king. And the priests couldn't fulfill their, 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 their calling. There was no te- tabernacle or temple, no high altar, no holy of holies. They couldn't celebrate Yom Kippur because the temple was destroyed, you see. But the prophetic office continued, didn't it? So you have Daniel and Ezekiel and Haggai and Zechariah and others whose names we don't even know. Why? Because under all circumstances, even in exile, people must hear the word of the Lord. So the prophetic office is never discontinued. And then at, at, after the exile, the three offices are going to be reinstated. That's tomorrow, incidentally. Zechariah chapter 3. This is by way of anticipation. So that the covenant community can have these three offices in anticipation of Him who will be our chief prophet, chief spokesperson for God, God, Emmanuel, in the flesh, you see. Our only high priest who brings his sacrifice of himself, who is both sacrificer, priest, and sacrifice, the lamb, at Calvary, an eternal king. His kingdom, which is not of this world. Okay? Now, Uh, Having that, it seems to me, I wish personally that uh, I know this is more continental than it is from the Scottish and the New England Reformed tradition, and I know many of you stand a little more strongly in the uh, Scottish and New England uh, tradition, which tended to be two-office in character, just elders and deacons, but two different kinds of elders. Uh, But uh, the Continental Reformed tradition has always emphasized the three-office, And I think that's reflected in Westminster. And uh, it's the pastor who is primarily, the represents the prophetic office, you see. And the elder represents the kingly office. And the deacon represents the priestly office. Because wasn't it the priests in the Old Testament too that received the offerings, the gifts of God's people, and presented them the sacrifice of God's people? And that's what the deacons do. They receive the offerings, I think the deacons should take the offering in church because uh, they're the ones to whom the offerings are committed, and they then present them to the lord to the lord's cause uh, and the the elders, the ruling office representing Jesus Christ in the midst of his covenant community, and the pastor, the prophetic office. so if you ask me, are there prophets today, well, I'd like to see a prophet in every pulpit. <laughs> because uh, that's the prophetic rule. Now, that's not a canonical prophet, is word-bound. That is, the revelation of God's will for the world is now completed and recorded in the Sacred Scripture. And the Bible now determines the parameters of prophetic declaration. And that's why every time a sermon is preached, it better be based on the Scriptures, because that's the Word of the Lord. Yeah. Now you say, well, it, doesn't it go a little beyond that? Yes. You see, we also, in our Reformed tradition, I would think rightly, recognize another office in the Church, the general office of believer. And the, the believer must also live by the Word of God. And I believe, therefore, that every believer has a prophetic role, not office. Not office. Office is an official position to which someone is called by the Holy Spirit through the believing community. That's an official position. Maybe I can make this so clear none of you will miss it. For instance, um, if there's an accident on the corner and the policeman hasn't arrived yet, and I can see that things are really jammed up, and and maybe I have a few skills to direct traffic. So I could go out there and serve a police role, (laughs) a traffic control role, and uh, I stopped this group for a while because no one's going past the accident. I stopped this trail for a while, and I said, come on through, and I let about a dozen cars go through, and and I say, now it's your turn, you know. And maybe I can function well. But when the policeman comes, he's the officer, the office holder, the official. He's got the badge. I may even be a better traffic controller, <laughs> but he's the official. When he stands there and says this, they have to obey. I mean, they didn't have to stop for me, you see. They have to. Now, now maybe maybe that's a little taking something from the secular arena, but uh, there may be one or two people in the church who are better at preaching than your pastor. But listen, he has been identified through a call; the Holy Spirit has called him uh, to this special role of a prophetic ministry. Maybe there's somebody out there in the congregation who is a potential more capable elder. But the elders have been officially called to be Christ's representative as king, to be the rulers of his church, and we should submit to them. And if someone in the church has, seems, to ha- seems to have more skills, we can it's not just skills, it's also spiritual maturity. Don't lay hands suddenly on anybody, says the Apostle Paul, which means don't ordain laying on of hands, ordination into an office suddenly. No, have to be tested, you see. And the Holy Spirit uh, enables the believing congregation to identify those who should serve in these capacities. But then there is also this general office. For instance, I have this general office of citizenship. And so I can function. You, You can even make a citizen's arrest. I guess if I went like this and someone didn't stop and he ran over my foot, uh, that I could make a citizen's arrest. I don't know if I could or not. Well, there is the general office of believer. And you know, every one of you as believers can have the responsibility that that can be characterized as a prophetic calling, a priestly calling, and a kingly calling. When you rule your family uh, in whatever role, father, mother, uh, rule... Ro- When you oversee your resources, your bank account, your property, your wardrobe, you must do so in a in a Christian kingly way, because after all, Jesus Christ is our master king, and we are responsible to Him with everything we have, all our skills, in your professions, whatever skills you have, you are ultimately accountable to Jesus and you must rule these, that's the ruling function, priestly. Every time you pray for somebody else, you are functioning in a priestly way because you are interceding, and that's the character of the priest, to intercede, receive the offerings of the people, present them to the Lord. Incidentally, uh, uh, to whom did people have to report in the Old Covenant if they had leprosy? The priest, the priest. And if they, uh, they, they got, were cured and could come back into society, they had to show themselves to the priest. So you see, the diaconate and its role for Christian mercy and Christian compassion and uh, help for the needy and the ill and the infirm, uh, the establishment, for instance, of uh, Christian rest homes is primarily a diaconal function. So, uh, yes, uh, there, there is prophecy today. But both for the official prophet, the pastor, and the office of believer as prophet, it is word-bound. That's how you contest it. That's how you contest it. Um, in a very recent magazine, I won't even tell you the source, I, I, I'm reading, I read an article, Where Have All the Prophets Gone? And this very learned man, has got all the degrees you want for, um, for theological expertise, uh, he contends that uh, there is prophecy today outside the bounds of the Bible. Um, that doesn't mean, you see, that every bit of the will of God in our lives has to be identified with some text in Scripture. I'm not saying that. No, but the Bible indicates God's will for our lives and the closer we stay to the Scripture, the more we will understand what God's will for our circumstances are. Always recognizing not our will, but thy will be done. And thy will is primarily revealed in the Scripture. But this man is suggesting that God speaks in a variety of ways extra-biblically which, of course, is a doctrinal position in the uh, charismatic movement. And uh, they speak, of of course, uh, 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 of a, a word of knowledge that anybody can come with up with a word of knowledge. But how do you test all of these if you don't test them by the standard of God's word? Now, in this article, as an example of prophecy today, uh, the author says, a husband and wife are sitting at the table discussing their future, His stint with a ballet company is finished, lost his job. No prospects for new contracts are on the horizon. They are perplexed and anxious. Suddenly, their four-year-old daughter, playing by herself in another part of the room, pipes up, "Uh, Mommy, how does that song go? You know the one, Trust and Obey. Her soft voice hits them like a hammer blow. Are they wrong to hear this as the voice of God? Is she too young a maiden to prophesy? And he is, his conclusion is, no. God prophesied through that little girl and uh, gave a word of truth so that the parents knew that they better trust and obey when, when, when the financial circumstances were such. Now, I don't doubt at all that the Lord reaches us through all sorts of experiences of life, But what that little girl did unknowingly by singing, how does that song go again? Trust and obey, you know. What that song happened to be for the parents, rightly understood, is simply a reminder of God's truth. So the real revelation is God's truth in the Bible. So there are circumstances in life which drive us back to the Scripture. But let's not call that prophecy, because then we have to ask, uh, you know, whether we should keep listening for prophets today and wonder if another Samuel is coming around the corner and we don't know whom to follow anymore. And that's precisely the the tragic condition of the Christian church today. It's following directions that have no verification in God's revealed truth. So uh, let's not uh, use the word prophecy for everything, and yet it is true that we can be prophetic so long as we are faithful to the word. Uh, For instance, we talked about uh, prophecy as primarily speaking God's word and will. So when you teach Sunday school class, you are fulfilling a prophetic role. You're not a prophet per se, but you're fulfilling a prophetic role in the office of believer. Now, it's interesting that you can declare the word and will of the Lord to your children, uh, to your Sunday school class, to your neighbor 's children and your witnessing, as a matter of fact, uh, we often identify prophecy with predicting the future. you know do you know that if you take a book like Isaiah, only about one percent of it deals with the future eschatology what 's coming in the future? Uh, a lot of Zechariah does a, a lot more of Zechariah, at least the first six chapters are. Um, predictive of the future, that is, eschatological, and we'll pick those factors out. So, But uh, anticipating the future is only one dimension and a small dimension of prophecy. Most of what the prophets did was simply tell the people what God's will was for them. And in the light of subsequent revelation, we can see what God's will is for us. And yet, having said that, every one of you in your prophetic role as a believer can predict the future. Every time you tell someone that if they believe in Jesus, if they surrender to the mercies and redeeming grace of Jesus, they will be saved. Now that's predictive, isn't it? You're telling them what's going to happen in the future course, the opposite is also true. You say, if you don't believe in the Lord Jesus, there's only judgment ahead. You're predicting the future, aren't you? But, of course, you're doing it on the basis of the Word of God, because that's what the Bible says. And I'm going to close. I didn't intend to go quite this long, but we're going to pick up Zechariah, I promise you. (laughs) 11 o'clock, all right? Uh, when I was uh, on active duty as a Navy chaplain, I served mostly on active duty with, in the Marine Corps. Uh, somehow, my brother, my brother just retired 10 days ago after 24 years in the Navy Chaplain Corps, and he spent 17 of it in the Marine Corps. You know, the Marine Corps have no chaplains of their own or doctors or dentists or nurses or corpsmen. Those are all supplied by the Navy, See, because the Marine Corps is not... A service like the naval service, the Marine Corps is one of the corps within the naval service, like the chaplain corps and supply corps and medical corps, and that's all part of the naval service. So uh, an assignment to the Marine Corps is just another assignment, like getting assigned to another ship. Well, I think they looked at us Bergsmuths and said, you long-legged guys can keep up with the infantry. So you, they kept sending us, and I tell you, I sloshed through uh, uh, the swamps with the Marines uh, far longer than I wanted to after I was 40 years old. Anyway, frequently I have was called, tragically, during the Vietnam era especially, to uh, perform funerals of uh, dead sailors and Marines, airmen, naval airmen, Navy corpsmen, marine, Marines, uh, more often than I wanted to, and I hardly ever knew anything about them. And uh, so what do you say? Well, you know, you can say some light and fluffy stuff, which is sickening, you know, it's, it's so artificial. Or you can tell them what, uh, you can be prophetic and tell them what the Lord says. And it was always my habit in, uh, to, um, to uh, tell the uh, battalion or ship's company that was gathered for this funeral that I didn't know the casualty personally, but I really do know a lot about him. And I know a lot about him because the Bible tells us a lot about all of us. And then I would go on to say that if seaman or sergeant or lieutenant so-and-so believed what it says in this book, and then I would quote, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved, then I know that he's with the Lord. And if, Sergeant so-and-so didn't believe in this, didn't commit himself to the Lord, then I know that he's not with the Lord, but he stands under judgment. So I really do know quite a bit about him. And I'm not some prophet that gets some vision during the night about him, but I learned about him in the Bible because the Bible tells us something about all of us. See? And that's the way, you know, I suggest to my uh, students at Westminster, I said, listen, when you're a pastor... If someone calls you and says, would you please conduct a funeral for my relative? It happens all the time. Do it! Don't say, oh, I'm sorry, not a member of my church. Or, I'm sorry, I don't know if he's a Christian or not. That's an opportunity. I had a funeral director in my second charge, and he he called me up one day and he said, hey, uh, Pastor, uh, I've got this... uh, I got this uh, family and we got this funeral and the man spent the last 15 years of his life and died in the state penitentiary. Uh, And they don't have a church. They never see the inside of a church building. Uh, So they don't have a pastor. And they said, uh, well, you get one. So he called me and I said, well, when's the funeral? (laughs) And I conducted that funeral. This man who spent the last 15 years in the state pen. And he died there. I mean, his his term hadn't expired. Well, it had. (laughs) but uh, (laughs) Yeah, you know. And uh, so I tell my students, take those opportunities so long as no one says, hey, you can't say this and you can't say that. I've had a few of those too. I had a chief petty officer die. And his wife said, uh, and I was the chaplain, she had to take me. That's the nice thing about military service, you know. Uh, you got, you got what's there. And she, I met with her and prepared this funeral. He died very suddenly of a heart attack. He was 37 years old, died in bed. She woke up next to a, a dead husband. But she said, chaplain, I don't want any of this religious stuff in the service. Well, I, I said, well, what do you want? She said, I want some dance music because I want to remember those good times we had dancing. And I said, well, no, we're not going to have that. I said, can't we have some hymns? Well, what ones? And I said, how about the Navy hymn? How's it go? So I was sitting there in the counseling session singing to her, Eternal Father, strong to sing. Oh, she recognized it as a Navy hymn. She said, okay, that's all right. That's the only hymn she would approve. <laughs> so that's all we play. Played it at the beginning, sang it in the middle, <laughs> sang it on the end, you know. But boy, when it was my turn when it was my turn, we opened the Bible and we told them what the situation was. She didn't say a word to me after that service, but that was it. Anyway, be prophets, hey? Is there prophecy today? Yes, there is, right here. And anything you teach or witness or testify in harmony with this word is prophetic. Amen? Okay, let's pray. Our Father, we pray that we may be faithful to your truth today. And we thank you that the complete revelation of your will for the world which you love so much to send your son has been incorporated in this word. And we thank you, too, that there'll be a day when we won't need prophecy anymore because we shall know as we are known face to face. And even the Bible will have served its purpose. And the jots and tittles of the word can pass away because we will be in the presence of him who is the living word before the throne of God himself to know the truth complete. In the name of Jesus, our prophet, our chief prophet, who is also our only high priest and our eternal king. Amen.